Welcome, welcome, curious souls, to the Macabre Emporium, your sanctuary for the unusual, the mysterious, and the appalling. Step through our cryptic doorway into a world where secrets whisper and enigmas come to life. I'm David. And I'm Sarah. Together, we're your custodians of the macabre, guiding you through tales that defy the ordinary. Discover the untold stories, from lesser-known cases of true crime to the bizarre events that captivate us. Join us on a journey to the shadows where the mainstream fades and the extraordinary beckons. So whether you seek the bizarre, the eerie, or the chillingly obscure, you're in for a treat here at Macabre Emporium. Welcome back to Macabre Emporium. This is episode 41 and first of Spooky Season. And if this is your first time joining us, welcome. Welcome. So, finally, October's here. Yay, October. The start of the, the real spooky season, according to the skeleton yep. forecast. Skeleton forecast? Yeah, that I posted in the group. Oh, yeah. Earlier this week, last week. Yeah. It's like there's a good chance of... It get to be about the really spooky or something like that, and it was a skeleton photoshopped over a weather map. Yeah, I remember that. I've got nothing to talk about. You got anything to talk about? Uh, no, I just uh, local theater. They are hinting at some special event this month. I'm. I know. I want to know what it is. I'm thinking it's probably some kind of paranormal investigation because there's no time for them to set up a quote unquote haunted house or in that place. But well, I... when I showed it to you, you told me no. I don't think so. Right. But did you ever watch the video I sent you? Yeah. Okay. So what do you have for this week? And the first week of the October episodes, which probably everything we're doing this month is going to be... Spooky related. Right. Maybe not exactly Halloween related, but, you know, kind of... Can have a spooky feel and not be Halloween related. Right. Kind of like my story is. I don't know what you're doing, so I can't say it. Well, I understand that. (laughs) I'm waiting for you to tell me... I will be going over Magdalena Solis, the High Priestess of Blood. Okay. Yeah. What are you doing? I'm doing the Bradford Sweets Poisoning of 1858. So kind of like in theme of Halloween or Spooky Month, Poison Candy, you should say, even though this legitimately actually happened. Oh. Okay. Because, you know, always check your candy for this, that, and the other. Like... Didn't you already do a case on? Yes, I did. Okay. The case they believe where that originated from. Oh. So you ready to get started then? Yes. Are you ready for me to get started? Yeah. So I'm just going to preface this with saying that it's there's not much backstory, which I usually like to throw in there. So this is just going to be a tiny little bit of backstory. And then we're just going to jump right the fuck in. All right. So, as I said, it's Magdalena Solis. Uh, This case is a lot a bit true crimey, a little bit vampy, and a lot a bit what the fucky. Okay. Okay? So, I'm going to start now. Like I said, there wasn't a lot of backstory. Uh, Magdalena Solis was supposedly born in Tamaulipas, Mexico, and the year is unknown, I've read 1947, but most of the sources that I read and or listened to said, like, late 1930s to early 1940s. Okay. So, not 100% sure. She lived in a generally poor region, and her family was dysfunctional. Like, highly dysfunctional. She didn't have the greatest of childhoods, and in fact, you could probably say that she didn't have a childhood, because she started prostituting at the age of 12. 
And her pimp was her older brother, Eleazar. What the fuck? Yeah. Of all people. So you can say that dysfunction was probably very, very high. Because you know mom and dad had to know about that. Yeah. If mom and dad was even in the picture. Right. But again, that's all the backstory I have on her. So we are going to fast forward to December 1962. There were two brothers, Cayetano and Santos Hernandez, and they were in the middle of traveling around Mexico, basically just stealing from people. They were extremely charismatic and easily fooled people with their fake sincerity. However, they wanted to play a bigger game, so they came up with their next ruse, and that was to swindle an entire town, not just a few people. They found a small town, and by small, I mean like 20-ish families. That was it. And that town was full of poor and mostly illiterate citizens. The town was called La Yerba Buena. And the town was at the foot of the Sierra Madre Oriental Mountain, which I'll get to later. The Hernandez brothers were set to go in and convince the townspeople that they were prophets of an Incan god that was exiled. They would go on about how if the townspeople listened to them and did everything they asked of them, that the gods would shine down on them and make them, you know, rich. The way they did it, it was like they almost put on a play. It was very theatrical because they fooled these people first into thinking that they were the prophets of an exiled god. And they were foolish enough to believe that. You know, if if you're poor and you have like... No education to speak of. People coming in and saying that they're going to make you rich would kind of perk your interest a little bit, right? Yeah. That these folks had absolutely no idea what they had signed up for. Due to the area the people of La Yerba Buena lived in... No. Due to the area the people of La Yerba Buena... That's so hard to repeat. See, here, unlike the dog show, if you know what I'm talking about, the cat show actually makes an, an attempt to pronounce some of these very <clears throat> difficult town names. And the fucked up part is that I've already read it perfectly the first three right. times. It's so the more I read it, the more my tongue wants to just, like, shrivel up and say, fuck yeah. you. Due to the area that the people of La Yerba Buena lived in, they were seemingly cut off from the rest of Mexico. They didn't travel far from their homes. They weren't part of the society there. With that, it's understandable that they wouldn't really know or have much knowledge of the outside world and what was happening around them. Clearly, they didn't know. The townspeople ate the story up and were extremely quick to believe what the Hernandez brothers were saying to them. Yeah. And just like that, the townspeople basically became slaves to the Hernandez brothers they would do literally anything that the, that was asked of them and give their brothers anything they asked for. But it didn't last long. No. A few of the townspeople became aggravated at the Hernandez brothers, stating that everything that they were doing, they were seeing nothing in return. No. No, no riches, no anything. And that they felt like the brothers were just being assholes and mistreating the townspeople. Which I'm sure they were. They were doing everything for the brothers, but they were not benefiting from everything that they were doing, even though it was promised to them. The few townspeople then turned into the entire town, and the brothers caught wind that they were not happy because of what was going on. Cayetano and Santos didn't abandon ship on their plan to swindle the town, even though they had already bled them dry. 
and instead they left the town with a promise to return. They traveled to a nearby city and stumbled upon a young and impressionable Magdalena Solis while they were while she was actively prostituting herself. They explained to her what they were doing in La Yerba Buena and the con that they were leading. They explained how the townspeople were growing frustrated with them and beginning to not believe what the brothers were saying to them. The brothers then asked Magdalena if she would come with them back to the town and pretend to be an actual Incan goddess. This way, the townspeople would start believing in them again and start doing for them again. Magdalena liked the plan and said she'd go if she got paid. The brothers were fine with that, so they handed her some money, and then the four of them headed back to La Yerba Buena. So the four of them was Cayetano and Santos, the brothers, and then Magdalena and her brother slash pimp, Eleazar. Mm-hmm. It's so fucking gross. When they reached the town, the brothers snuck Magdalena through the town so that none of the townspeople would see her, and they set her up in a cave that was just below the town. Because, you know, they're on the... Base of the mountain. So they went all out on her. They set her up deep in the cave, dressed her up in like Incan goddess uh, tile type clothing. And once she looked the part and was filled in on what her cue would be to show herself to the townspeople, it was time to make believers out of them again. The brothers went back to the town, gathered everyone up and led them to the cave. They followed, you know, because they were told that there was about to be a ceremony that was just for them. When they got there, one of the brothers used, like, magic to create a smoke screen, basically, that filled the entrance of the cave. Magdalena was back further in the cave, so she could see out. But they couldn't see They could not the see her because of, right, the light and the smoke. So when she was motioned to come forward to show herself... She walked forward and then jumped through the smoke. She introduced herself to the townspeople and told them that she was a true Incan goddess and that she had been reincarnated. She also told them that if they did not listen to her and do exactly as she told them to, that she would kill them. So it went from like 25 to 90 real quick. Yeah. And just like that, again, townspeople became believers. Because there's no way that this woman just jumped through smoke out of nowhere. Right. And wasn't really an Incan goddess, right? Cayetano and Santos were feeling great now that their plan was back in action. And this almost instantaneously in that moment became a cult. Oh, I'm sure. So, yes, this is also a little bit culty. A lot of bit culty. <laughs> but there was a moment when they had questioned what happened. By them, I mean the brothers. The change in Magdalena, as soon as she jumped through that smoke, like she was forever changed. She had seen the looks on the townspeople's faces and was basically in a, like a trance-like, trance-like state. Okay. That was really hard to say. God damn. She had seen the pure adoration that they instantly shown, you know, for her. She had a following now that she had always wanted. She was reveling in the fact that these people instantly were hers, like, from the moment they saw her. Right. They're under her thumb. While in her trance-like state, she began to truly believe that she was a reincarnated Incan goddess. Like, 
mentally, she she was fucked. Yeah. But with that and seeing their faces and how they're like instantly the adoration they had for her, like she mentally truly started to believe that she was what she was pretending to pretending be. To be. <clears throat> However, Magdalena would not be a fair or a merciful goddess. And they found that out pretty quickly. <laughs> Within just a few days of her being in La Yerba Buena, Magdalena had already been threatening people. She was threatening them and telling them that she was going to take over their entire village. She was conducting drug-fueled mass orgies and using the townspeople as her, as her like personal sex slaves. If no one offered themselves to Magdalena, she would choose one for herself and have her brother grab that person and bring them to her where she would have sex with them and demand they perform sexual acts on her, even against their own will. So she was essentially raping them. Yeah. From children to elderly. Yeah. She well, didn't care. More cult-like behavior. The Hernandez brothers were a bit stunned, as they were the ones that had thought of this entire plan and brought Magdalene in to keep the people at bay, basically, so they could continue being, like, the bosses on the job. But somehow that switched when Magdalena came in. She is now the head honcho and they're beneath her. Yeah. Which they didn't mind because, you know, townspeople were still doing for them as well. You know, because they were prophets. Fucking prophets. A few weeks of being in La Yerba Buena, Magdalena had been abusing every single one of the townspeople. She also came to be a little bit insane. Like I said, she instantly in her own head started to think that she was like actually an Incan goddess. Right. But it went for, it goes further than that. She embodied every sense of being a reincarnated goddess and 100% believed that she was. So much so that she made herself believe that she would only continue to survive if she drank blood. I'm sure you can imagine what the next task for the townspeople was, right? Yeah, blood sacrifices. <laughs> so that's what they did. They started off with just killing their personal pets, their farm animals, and they continued just to do and do and do for Magdalena. All the while, she's still abusing them. They're still not getting anything in return. Right. So definitely one-sided relationship there. In April of 1963, the scam of Magdalena and the Hernandez brothers was no longer a viable story for two of the town's people. They decided they wanted nothing more to do with the fake prophets and the fake goddess. They were set to just walk away from the town and not look back. The only issue with that was they said it somewhere that somebody else heard them. So with this cult-like mentality, that's their goddess. You're going to walk away from your goddess. They went and told everybody else in the town. And it got back to Magdalena, of course. Right. That evening, another ceremony would happen in the cave. And everyone, including the two that no longer wanted to be there, were in attendance. When the ceremony began, Magdalena walked up, pointed at the pair that were going to leave... And then demanded that the rest of the townspeople kill them. Being the good little followers that they were, they all jumped up and surrounded the pair before beating them to death right there in the cave. 
Magdalena then ordered the pair of bodies be drugged to the back of the cave and hung up on, like, a pole. She then grabbed a chalice and held it to wherever the bodies were bleeding from and then drank their blood. At this point, Magdalena was really off her rocker and stated that animals would no longer do for drinking. It wasn't potent enough to keep her alive. Oh, imagine that, of course. Yeah. Yeah. It was only human blood she would drink from then on. This is when she declared herself as Magdalena Solis, the High Priestess of Blood. The ceremonies continued regularly for weeks after that, and each time one was held, the townspeople would go in knowing that one of them was not coming out. They just went in never knowing who it was that would not be coming out. In dramatic fashion, each time Magdalena appeared, she would randomly choose someone from the small crowd and they would be her sacrifice. When the sacrifice was chosen, it was done the same way as that of the pair that was murdered. Magdalena would demand that the townspeople kill them, knowing that they were their friends, their family. Yeah. She didn't give a fuck. Each sacrifice was drugged to the back of the cave and hung up on a pole so that Magdalena could collect their blood in her chalice and drink it. Magdalena believed that the way the people were being beaten to death was somehow stifling the power of their blood. So she then demanded that the townspeople not beat them to death, just basically beat them... Into submission? Into submission, unconscious. That way, the blood was still good. Yeah. Fucking nut jobs. (laughs) Yeah. They would then be walked to the pole, hung up, and Magdalena would carve their heart out while they were still alive before drinking their blood. In May of 1963... A 14-year-old boy named Sebastian Guerrero left his home and went to find treasure that he had heard was rumored to be in one of the caves near his home. The caves were in the Sierra Madre mountain range, and that goes through about 700 miles in Mexico. So it's, I mean, it starts almost up by Texas. Okay. And it goes 700 miles south of that. It's a huge mountain area. This was not Sebastian's first time wandering the base of the mountain and going inside the caves. There were many caves at the mouth of the mountain, but one in particular drew him in. There was light coming from within the cave. There were definitely caves closer to his home, but when he saw the one that had light coming out from it, he kind of forgot his plan about finding treasure and went to that cave. The closer he got to this cave, he could hear voices. He said at first it sounded like laughter, but when he got about 300 feet from the mouth of the cave, he realized it wasn't laughter at all. It was screaming. And not like somebody being yelled at. Right. Like somebody screaming in pain. Yes, screaming in pain. So that's when he should turn around and beat feet the fuck out of there. You'd think so. Especially being a 14-year-old kid. Mm -hmm. Like, you wouldn't catch my ass going to fucking look. Or getting any closer, for that matter. Sebastian came to the realization the closer he got that there wasn't just one person in there screaming. There were numerous people in there screaming, which he said sounded like they were singing or chanting. Probably chanting. Right. When he got about 10 feet away from the opening, he kept going closer. When he got about 10 feet away from the opening, he hid behind a large rock and then moved right next to the edge of the cave opening so that he could peek his head around and look inside. 
He was instantaneously frozen in place for a bit, and then his fight or flight kicked in, and he hauled balls. Like, ran away from the cave. He didn't even run back to his house. He was running in the direction of his house, but he ran literally 10 miles past his house. Oh, damn. Straight to the police station. In Get his this sta- kid on the dry uh, cross-country team. <laughs> I don't think they had those back then. I don't know. I could be wrong about that. Probably am. In hysterics, he ran in the door of the police station, dripping sweat, and began to frantically tell the police what he had just witnessed. Except he wasn't sure what he had just seen. Mm-hmm. He was trying to make sense of it as he was telling the police, and the best he could do was basically tell them that what he thought he witnessed was vampires. Yeah. That's what he said. Vampires. The cops were quick to dismiss what was said by Sebastian. They did what they could to calm him down and reassured him that if they heard anything bad coming from the caves, that they would go out and investigate. Yeah. (laughs) That sounds like a typical cop. Well, you gotta think about it. Dismissing a kid. Yeah. As you get a kid, you know, covered in sweat, screaming about vampires in the police station, you're like, okay, whatever. Right. Sebastian begged and pleaded for the police to take him seriously, stating that he knew something bad was happening there at that exact moment. But again, the police dismissed his claims. The next step was to take Sebastian home. So they did that, they dropped him off, and then they went back to the station. The next morning, Sebastian woke up reliving what he had seen the night before. He immediately got out of bed, got dressed, went back to the police station. This time, there was a officer named Luis Martinez uh, on shift, and he actually took the time to sit down with with Sebastian and listen to him. So I don't know if I'm just like, get out of here, kid. He's the only one that didn't dismiss him. So Sebastian was like begging and pleading with Officer Martinez to go with him to that cave. He was going to direct him. Right to the cave that he had just, well, the previous night, witnessed some shit happening. Louise would reason with Sebastian and ask him to go ahead and direct him to the cave, and he would look around. Louise and Sebastian then headed out of the police station and back to the cave, this time in daylight. They had been there quite a while before the other police officers back at the station realized that they had not heard from Louise for quite a while. He hadn't returned. He hadn't contacted them on the radio. It was literal radio silence on his end. Yeah. The officers began to radio Louise, but never got a response. The entire day went by, and that evening, they still had not heard or seen Louis. So they grew concerned and worried something bad had happened to them. All day, he's been gone. You hear nothing from him. All day, an entire shift's worth of day. And it takes you nighttime to become worried. They probably may maybe taking into consideration that well, not consideration. You're like, oh, I'm sure he's fine is one thing, but also being in a mountain range, possible being in caves, he's gonna have no radio reception. So he like, I already assuming why North is going, but even if he had his radio on and he's around these caves or these mountain ranges, he probably like radio never received the frequency. We don't know that. I know. But still, you'd think, you know, you'd at least want to go check up on your coworker that right, went out in the field. 1960s were the, you know, 
wellness checks, not wellness checks. I forget what the correct term is that we used, but oh, the status report basically was probably now more has more of a protocol on a lot of public services. I guess it's because of things like this. At any rate, the officers then decided to take action and they drove to Sebastian's home and questioned his parents on the last time they had seen Sebastian. They told officers they had not seen him since the morning when he had woke up and left the house. So that's now two people that took off together and have seemingly just vanished. All right, but his parents probably is like, he's just a kid, he gets up, he leaves, he doesn't come home until dinner time or whatever. The police then contacted the Mexican army because they were short-staffed at their office. And they needed backup in case of, you know, some shit happening. The Mexican army showed up to help, and the couple of police officers that were available to go, they all grouped together and headed out to the cave. Once they got there and walked in, they realized that they should have listened to Sebastian the day before. The Mexican army and police had gone to La Yerba Buena to talk to the townspeople, except there were none. And they had all been ordered to be in the cave and were barricaded in with weapons, of course. Magdalena had to have known that the police would come looking for them when they realized one of their officers uh, was missing. Right. She, Sorry for the gap. And she was correct. When the Mexican army and police reached the cave, there was a giant shootout as the townspeople were trying to protect their goddess and the officials were trying to protect themselves. Almost all of the townspeople were killed in the shootout, as were the Hernandez brothers. Once the shootout was finished, the officials would head inside the cave and be witness to absolute carnage. All of the poles that had dead bodies on them, all of the poles that had dead bodies hung on them were still there. All of the people in various states of decomposition. There were pieces of people all over the ground, like they had pieces of their body cut, like, and just like tossed over their shoulder, you know, like you do salt, like a pinch of salt. Yeah. Just pieces of body everywhere well that's probably because they were cutting off appendages and everything else in between to get the blood up for their goddess is probably why well she cuts their hearts out right but also they get the blood out of the limbs at some point even though they are being hung upside down they weren't hung upside down oh i thought you said that at one uh -uh. point like i can't imagine the smell coming out of that gate right Ugh. i'm sure you could smell it before they even got to it uh you'd think so well, maybe not actually because it is a cave, so it's going to be a lot cooler in there. So slowed down the decomposition process. So probably didn't smell outside of it until at all until you got inside. Then you probably could. I'm sure it hit you in the face like a fucking brick. I'm sure. So other than the two Hernandez brothers, none of the other bodies could be identified, you know, due to the beatings that the townspeople right. gave them in various states of decomp. At least until the officials went back to town to try and find any survivors there, and they stumbled upon the body of 14-year-old Sebastian Guerrero and a heartless Luis Martinez propped up outside of a house. They then entered that house and found a very much alive Magdalena Solis and her brother Elazar. They were both arrested on the spot. There was no one willing to speak out against Magdalena from those that did survive, so... The prosecutors could only try the Soli siblings for the two murders of Sebastian and Louise. Right. Even though they know damn well. Yeah, but they can't prove it. Nobody's right. talking against her. 
Both of them were given a 50-year sentence. The cult members that survived all got 30 years each for the heinous shit that they helped with. And this would be the last time that anyone had seen Magdalena alive. No one knows what happened to her after she was imprisoned. If she lived and served her entire sentence, she would have been out in 2013. And people believe that she is still alive and in her 90s now. That's fucked up to think about. (laughs) Hopefully just being a crazy cat lady instead of... Just a crazy fucking Incan goddess. Yeah. Yeah. So what Sebastian had seen when he walked in the... Well, looked around the corner of the cave. Mm -hmm. He witnessed Magdalena stabbing somebody in the chest and then carving around to grab their heart out and then drinking blood from their heart. That's what he saw. And that's what he told police was that he had seen vampires drinking blood. Pretty fucked up. I mean, at least one cop took him serious. Yeah. Unfortunately. Unfortunately, You know, he (laughs) lost his life due to it, but, you know. Yeah. If, you know, at least one didn't pay attention to what he had to say, how many more people would have Right. Outside of the town. Not. Would have died. Yeah. Like, Sebastian was definitely the hero in this story. Right. But it sucks that he he went out the way he did. Yeah. Because I already can see it now that at some point it's going to be like some excuse would be brought up so they would start bringing in people from neighboring towns and stuff like that. Mm. Or just moving locations entirely. Yeah. So, yeah, that was a very interesting. Yeah. Story tying with, you know, to October with being, you know, vampires and drinking blood, basically. And I thought so. So, yeah, this is what all of, all of our episodes of October are going to be. It's going to be, you know, true crime from Sarah. Like Maybe. History, origin stuff. You're never going to do an origin story. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know that. I know that, but so there. We got vampires knocked out for October so far. And, yep. And, you know, we're going to move on to poison candy which always comes up and during the month of october and just remember everybody there's nobody out there on the fucking planet that's gonna give your kids edibles during trick-or-treating season those fuckers are expensive so stop sharing that stupid shit about that it's gonna happen share the fit that share that meme that's out there about the you know nobody's gonna give your kids their edibles no but if they do I mean, enjoy your kid-free night, because they're going to be knocked the fuck out. <laughs> All right. And let us know where it's at, because <laughs> so we can, I guess, alert the authorities in which house it is <laughs> or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyways. So anyway, you ready to hear about the Bradford Sweets poisoning? Yep. All right. So earlier this year, I brought you and everyone the case of Ronald Clark O'Brien in episode 22, the a-hole that killed Halloween. Just real quick, just as a reminder, O'Brien killed his son Timothy with a pixie stick that he tampered with by replacing some of the candy with cyanide to try and collect life insurance policies on him and his sister. Thankfully, his sister never ate his. But for our first episode of October, I am bringing you another tale of poison candy, but on a much larger scale, and this was on accident. Oh. William Hardacre, known by the locals as Humbug Billy, sold sweets from a market stall in Bradford, England during the 19th century. In the green market of Bradford, which is now the Arndale Center today, which is also still a shopping area, basically. It's like a walkthrough. It's a mall, basically. 
Herdacre would purchase his humbug candies from an experienced candy maker named Joseph Neal on Stone Street, just a few hundred yards north of Green Market. So, what are humbugs? Probably one is what you're probably... I've never heard of them. Okay, so... Humbugs are similar to the red and white peppermints that you get as a restaurant for after your dinner or in your grandparents' candy dish. Like the ones that kind of melt in your mouth. Yeah, the red, the circle ones yeah. with the red stripes on it is basically what this is. But theirs are not circular. These are more of a barrel shape. Okay. Almost like a pellet from what I could see when I looked up pictures for comparison. And humbugs would be made from sugar, gum, it's not like chewing gum, but like natural gums from plants mm -hmm. and animals or glycerin and peppermint oil. So very similar to the mints I was just talking about. Yeah. You would first mix the sugar with either the gum or the glycerin, whatever you're using, in a pan while it's being heated until the sugar becomes sticky. Then you would pour this heated mixture out onto a table. And this is where you would put in your coloring and then this is they also would start folding the coloring in and mm -hmm. what this action does during candy process it aerates the candy changing its structure so it becomes shiny and pearlescent in appearance so it's more eye-catching and yeah. appealing to the eye and then after that depending on if you want to get fancy with it because like some of the pictures that came up with it for these humbugs they were like striped like in tan or brown in the pictures that they come up with you can use whatever food coloring you wanted so you would like make take these strips put them all together and then that's when you would start cutting your candy mm -hmm. as it cools and hardens back up and that's how they get stripes and candy and that's how candy canes are shaped too i know there's a tiktok account i follow that it's a, a father and daughter duo that own a candy shop and you see them make all kinds of shit well, damn, I did all that extra work for no reason. <laughs> but the other people that listen might not know. <clears throat> but during these times, sugar was expensive and was more affordable to the wealthy for higher-end sweets. Sugar was so expensive, it was considered white gold and would also be kept locked away in vaults like you would money. Seriously? Yeah. Wow. Confectioners that catered to the lower classes like Joseph Neal, who... William Hardacre would buy his candy from would use what is called daft to reduce the amount of sugar needed to make their sweets. So daft is just basically like a filler compound to, count, to keep down their costs. Mm -hmm. I enlisted the help of two listeners that live over in the United Kingdom and the way they tried explaining how the pricing happened because decimalization in their currency didn't happen until like the 1970s. And I was going to put in here how much sugar was per pound at that time and inflated to now. And even with the help of both of them, it was like, what? I'm just going with sugar was really fucking expensive at this time. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, that's probably the best option for you to do trying to, uh, for trying to figure this out. Okay. So yeah, sugar really expensive at the time. Daft could be limestone crushed to powder or gypsum powder, better known as plaster of Paris to our crafty listeners. And during these times, this was well known to be done and completely legal to do, but it was a matter of, well, maybe not so legal, but was one of those things that nobody paid attention to, mm. knowing what's happening. On October 30th, Joseph Neal would send James Archer, who was living in his home at the time, to pick up 12 pounds of dash from Charles Hodgson at his pharmacy three miles away in Shipley. Charles was out ill that day and was assisted by a man by the name of William Goddard. Goddard would ask Charles where the daft is kept and would be told it's in a cask in the corner of the attic. Instead of being daft like Neil requested, 
He was accidentally given 12 pounds of arsenic trioxide. Oh. Mm-hmm. 12 pounds? 12 pounds. Oof. Which, once again, was totally legal for anyone to buy, even though it is known as the poison of choice for murderers. At this time, it was still legal to buy. Just for those who might not know what arsenic trioxide is or what it looks like, it's a white powdery substance very similar to sugar in the gypsum powder like they were using as a filler to make this candy. And it is very poisonous, obviously, because, you know, like I said, it was the poison of choice for murderers. Arsenic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it is very poisonous and consuming large amounts can cause death very quickly. But in smaller amounts, it can take up to four days to cause death. So, okay. Question. With... Like, if somebody ate just one piece of candy, is it guaranteed death? This candy in particular? Yeah. We'll get to that. Okay. During these Victorian times, it was used mostly in dyes for wallpaper and clothing. The most famous color being Shields Green, which is a very bright, bright vibrant green, almost like a John Deere green, almost. Okay. That's the best way I can put it for anybody that doesn't know what Shield Green looks like. So, John Deere, like a brighter John Deere green for the most part. Gotcha. And it was used in coloring of glass, and sometimes it was used to treat syphilis. Damn. Yeah. But so <laughs> if you consume this, even in small amounts, it will kill you. Right. So this was a cure for syphilis? We're just going to off these fuckers? Oh, well, I mean, it stopped syphilis, doesn't it? Yeah, it stops your whole goddamn process. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you're using very, very small amounts of it, like it's still used today for medications. Oh. But we're probably talking like point zero 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 percents and shit like yeah. that. Mm. You know, well, medicine today was a little bit more accurate than it was in the 19th century, so. I'd say so. If I remember right, it said it came up V's and leukemia treatments now. Today. Is it really? Mm-hmm. Uh. Yeah, I was a little surprised that it's actually used for that for any yeah. medical reasons, but, but anyhow. Back into the story before we get off track. Back in Joseph Neal's Candy Kitchen... James Appleton is preparing to make a fresh batch of humbugs for William Hardacre. He takes a sugar, the arsenic trioxide, which he believes to be the daft, and peppermint oils and mixing them together as he's done before, being an experienced candy maker himself. Instead of cutting the sugar with what was supposed to be the daft, he ended up using all 12 pounds of the undetected arsenic in this batch and started to become ill during the cooking process. Appleton ended up being sick for several days with vomiting, pain in his hands and arms, unaware that he is suffering from arsenic poisoning, more than likely dismissed it as something completely different. As we know, multiple diseases are running through the streets of England during this time. Yeah. Later on the same day, William Hardacre stops in to buy these candies to sell in his market stall like he would as usual. But on this day, the color was off. I can only imagine it because of the chemical compound that's in it being heated would change things. Oh, yeah. They were darker than usual, and after some negotiations, William Hardacre ended up purchasing 40 pounds of these arsenic lace candies, not knowing, you know, they're poisoned. He just comes in to buy the candy, he probably buys 40 pounds at a time, you know, they're getting a wholesale price. Does he have his own store? Yeah, he has a market stall. That he sells oh, the shit. Candy I'm off. like, why is he buying 40 pounds of candy at and one time? Yeah, he okay, has a market. That, that makes sense. Yeah. I must have missed that when you said it. Was it was like at the very beginning. <laughs> I must have missed it because I'm like, that's a lot of fucking candy. So with him having buying these 40 pounds of odd colored candies, he ends up selling them in a stall for a discounted rate this day. 
He would even eat one of these freshly made humbugs to see if it tasted any different, and he soon fell ill right afterwards. However, Hardacre blamed his sudden illness on something completely different and continued to sell on the candy. Yeah. So by the end of this day, he ends up selling five pounds out of the 40 he bought that day. Now, do we know if it was to the same person or for it's probably just, just random in general, people, just random people, more than likely it Ugh. being in a market stall? Yeah, and it's just people coming in, factory workers, housewives, a couple pieces. Yeah. Damn. Kids stealing them, people stealing them, whatever. Yeah. By the morning of October 31st, Halloween, hmm. two children ages ages eight and 11 would be dead. Damn. The police determined their cause of death to be natural causes from cholera due to the high mortality rate of children during this time period. And, of course, cholera was one of the bigger outbreaks at this time, which, you know, with the Necropolis Railway episode or Victorian episode. And did they have autopsies at that time? Probably they did at some point, but not like. Not the way they are today, where that's, right. that's their go-to to figure out what exactly yeah. happened. Well, this time's like, you know, kids are dropping left and right, you know, from cholera yeah. and whatever other disease outbreak or just getting mangled in machinery from, you know, being working in factories. Yeah. They're like, well, yeah, that's natural causes. We're done here, you know. So by Halloween, the Bradford Observer reported sudden deaths are multiplying on every side. In their newspaper. It wouldn't be until the police arrived at number 30, Jowett Street, that two more children, ages 5 and 2, would be dead inside their home. Their father, Mark Moran, suggested that maybe the peppermint candies he bought could be the cause of death. His suspicions would soon be confirmed after an unnamed young man volunteered to eat one himself and became ill shortly after eating one of these humbug candies. But did he die? Didn't say. Couldn't find out. Moran told the police that he purchased the candy from Green Market and the seller was Humbug Billy, or William Hardacre, by his actual name. By the time the poison candy was discovered, more than 200 people would have been affected by this sudden illness, killing 21 total. Damn. What a way to kick off Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> as William Hardacre was the police main suspect causing all these deaths, this would be also quickly dismissed as he was found writhing in pain at home as he too had eaten some of this candy days before. Hardacre would go on to tell the police that Joseph Neal is responsible for this as he buys his candy wholesale from Neal to sell. For the remainder of Halloween, police and bell ringers would alert as many people as they could about this dangerous candy. Do you know what a bell ringer is? Uh, I mean, I know what. That's the Salvation Army ones. That's, I know that's it's... the only bell ringer I so know So basically of. a bell ringer is, you know, old timey movies. You see a guy ringing a bell, screaming, hear ye, hear ye. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's basically what a bell ringer is. Okay. He's got the latest he's news. spread the news. Yeah. He's okay. spreading the... Yeah, so that's what the what a bell ringer was okay. in this time period. By November 1st, the Bradford Observer also reported that the quiet slumbers of innumerable persons were broken at midnight by the warnings. The walls of the town were thickly covered with an official... Pr- Precaution from the chief constable, chief of police. Yeah. Charles Hogson and Joseph Neal would stand before the courts on charges of manslaughter. Even with Hodgson and Neal charged with manslaughter, Dr. John Bell ended up identifying arsenic as being the cause of death for the four children and the others. And then this was also then confirmed by Felix Remington, a prominent pharmacist and analytical chemist. Remington estimated each candy contained 14 or 15 grains of arsenic. 4.5 to 9 grains is a lethal dose. Damn. So 
with his findings, even though I couldn't find a standard size of what this piece, how big these candies were, I'm guessing somewhere between a half an inch to an inch long is how big they are. Probably okay. depends on the maker of the candy, how big they're going to be. You think they're like the size of those root beer barrels, maybe? Probably, but a little skinnier. Yeah. They concluded that each of these candies had enough arsenic to kill two people. Ooh. And only 20 died out of all the people mm-hmm. that ate them. And enough of these candies were distributed to kill up to 2,000 people total. Damn. Hodgkins and Neil would be acquitted of all charges on December 21st, 1858. Probably because it was a mistake of some sort. There was no malicious intent behind this happening. But after this incident, there was a large public outcry that something needed to be done. So something like this didn't happen again. So the Pharmacy Act of 1868 required chemists chemists and pharmacists to keep records of those who purchase these type of drugs or poisons as we know them now today and similar materials like this kept by pharmacists and chemists and that these materials only could be sold if the containers had the seller's name and address on the containers itself gotcha so i can trace it back Mm -hmm. smart so yeah that's the poison suites of 1858 bradford england so basically just fuck candy. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. That's what you get out of that. Don't trust the candy. Unless it's the seasonal Reese's, I'll always trust them. <laughs> yep. Did you ever notice if from like after Easter and then you got to wait till like basically fall again to get any? Yep. Because you won't eat any other ones other than those. Nope. It's a long wait. Yeah. I don't know how you do it. Because as many of those as you get once these the Halloween ones start showing up. Because you get the Halloween ones, and then they turn into Christmas trees, and you get that little tiny break in the middle, yeah. and then the eggs start showing up, and then it's like nothing. Well, you get the hearts for Valentine's oh, Day. Oh, is there hearts? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I forget there are hearts. But I don't think there's anything between Easter and Halloween. No, I mean, they could make like a <clears throat> rocket-shaped one, but I think it'd probably come out looking like something else. <laughs> hmm <laughs> Or a Liberty Bell, maybe. But then again. Come out looking like balls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> balls are just the tip, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> oh, man. I don't know. I don't know that they could do anything for 4th of July that wouldn't look, just look right? goofy. Nope. I can't think of anything, really. And there's really no major holidays until Halloween. I mean, you got Labor Day in between, but... Huh? Labor Day in between. I'm saying, like, major holidays. It is a major holiday. That people celebrate. It's a major holiday because we get the day off. Any holiday that we get off is a major holiday to me. No, I'm talking Easter, Christmas, Valentine's Day, maybe, Halloween. Maybe we need the... Thanksgiving. Lead the charge and, you know, on Reese's, needs to make a... Can we just get a summertime holiday candy so there's like a seasonal one? Shape it like a fucking popsicle. Put it on a stick. (laughs) Maybe. Oh, then there's, wait, there's the football ones too. Those aren't footballs, those are pumpkins. No, there's a football one. Oh, I don't remember a football one. There is. Either way, fuck football. Next time we go to Walmart, (laughs) I'm going to fucking find one and I'm going to bring it home. Mm. Okay. So just to prove you that they exist. I know I've seen these. If you've seen the know. football-shaped Reese's, please say something in a group so I can prove they're wrong. I mean, go ahead. I don't care. But yeah. 
So anyhow, I think it's time we close the Emporium up for the day. What do you think? Yep. So until next time. Remember to creep it real. All right, bye. Bye. Please check out our website at macabreemporiumpodcast.com. Join our Facebook group by searching Macabre Emporium. Like and subscribe on YouTube at Macabre Emporium Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Macabre Emporium. And if you have any stories of the paranormal, your local true crime, or weird history that you would want us to look into and possibly do an episode on, email us at macabreemporiumpod at gmail.com. Remember to follow, rate, like, review, and share whenever and wherever you can and help us grow our little baby podcast. 